it's officially afternoon now. Welcome to the Hudson Institute. For those of you who've been here in the past, you know that usually these panels consist of three panelists and one moderator, but we have two such big brains with us here today that these two are going to carry the weight, the intellectual firepower um, for three. In all seriousness, we thought this would be a great opportunity given all that's happening in the region, uh, in the Middle East, from the Turkish incursion in northern Syria to the Iran protests. The vice president, of course, now is traveling uh, in the Middle East, too, to discuss what's going on, what's happening, and maybe to uh, excavate some of the uh, underlying assumptions that uh, both of these scholars analysts have in their views uh, of the Middle East, maybe talk about some points of agreements. If there are divergences, we can uh, talk about those, too, and give us um, a sense of where things stand. So with that, let me introduce uh, these two um, senior fellows from Hudson Institute. On my right is Mike Duran. Mike Duran is most recently the author of Ike's Gamble, America's Rise to Dominance in the Middle East, which the Washington Institute awarded its uh, silver medal book prize for the book of the year last year. I believe it's available on Amazon, as uh, Mike would, I'm sure, appreciate me mentioning. Um, before joining Hudson Institute, he was at the Brookings Institution in a similar capacity. Um, he served in government as a deputy assistant secretary of defense in the Bush administration, also as a senior advisor at the State Department, and in the Bush White House was uh, senior director uh, for the Middle East. Um, on my left is Eric Brown. As Scooter Libby, our vice president, likes to say, uh, Eric is the Indiana Jones of Hudson Institute. For the past 15 years, he's been traipsing around the world, but especially around uh, the Middle East, meeting with all sorts of uh, officials and people and sundry types and sort of doing an anthropological map almost of the region. So we're very fortunate uh, that he's with us here today. He's also the editor of the review, Current Trends in Islamist Ideology, which he's shepherded from its very beginning, its inception, uh, all the way through to today. I think we're on volume 23 or 24, uh, if I remember. 23. 23. All right. I got ahead of myself. Um, Eric um, has uh, taken a lot of these findings and produced several reports for government clients and is um, uh, originally trained in, in the classics at St. John's. Um, with that, let me just start, uh, given the title of the talk, um, by uh, asking Eric to give us a scene setter for what's happening in the region, uh, what the state of the U.S. relationship with our NATO partner, uh, Turkey, at the moment is, and maybe since he spent so much time um, working, especially in Iraqi Kurdistan, but with the Kurds writ large, uh, to give us a sense of who are the Kurds, what are the Kurds, and, uh, uh, and what's happening at the moment. All right. Great. Thank you, Peter. And thank you all for coming today. It's nice to see so many old friends uh, in the audience. Uh, I'll start with Turkey, and we'll broaden out from there. And Mike, I'm sure, will help uh, uh, as he see, deems fit. Um, as many of you know, I've argued now for some time that the Turkish Republic as we've known it for more or less the last half century is fallen. It is no longer, for all practical purposes, it's no more. And U.S. policy and long-range strategy needs to take full measure of what that means. Uh, it has been clear for years that the AKP phenomenon in Turkey, particularly Erdoganism, is not merely a transient phase between periods of modern Republican rule, owed to the corruption and poor, and, 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 but rather that this is a new normal and that there are new norms being created within Turkish society. 
Turks have lived, as we know, under emergency rule since July 2016, when a breakaway faction in the military failed to topple the elected government of strongman Erdogan, slaughtering hundreds of civilians. Since then, a process set in motion years ago by the AKP to dramatically remake the political foundations of the country has accelerated. As we know, legal and institutional constraints on the president's powers have been systematically dismantled. With dizzying speed and efficiency, tens of thousands have been detained, arrested, purged from their judiciary, the free media, the educational system, the military, which had, of course, been the historical linchpin of the Atlantic Alliance, all with the intent of subordinating these institutions to the president's new powers. Civil opposition, as we know, has been muzzled with many fearing for their reputations as well as their livelihoods if they speak out against the so-called palace in Ankara. In April 27, as we, 2017, as we know, Turks had voted in a popular referendum to cement Erdogan's imperial presidency in a new constitution. These are profound historical developments, and they intermingle in several ways with what I think can be rightfully described as the ongoing meltdown of the post-1991 geopolitical settlement throughout the Middle East or Southwest Asia. Let's be clear that I think many millions of Turks, civic republicans, secularist and religious ones alike, have been asking over the last decade where in fact the Atlantic Alliance, in fact, where in fact the United States has been as the world has come crashing down all around them. Russian power has advanced virtually unopposed and established its dominance around the Black Sea region. Now we see almost permanent, seemingly permanent deployments across Syria uh, from Russia. Um, Iran, as well, has poured into the vacuum across the Greater Levant, running various factions, supporting the Assad regime. Um, and NATO's response has been, or the Atlantic Alliance and the U.S.'s response has been, uh, as we know over the last 10 years, um, somewhat absent. As these foes have encircled Turkey, the sad thing is, is that because of developments within Turkey itself, its own internal cohesion and its defenses against these new threats in the region have broken down, making it more vulnerable to outside coercion and subversion. This has largely been the consequence, again, of the ruling Erdogan faction in the AKP, which has acquired and consolidated its power by relying on different forms of religious nationalism, jingoism, and divide-and-rule tactics. In the process, Turkish society has become highly factionalized. I think what you're seeing in Turkey is actually a deep process of real political entropy, because what you've seen has been the exacerbation of the many once-submerged fault lines that the republic, in a way, had always, had an op always held out the opportunity or the potential to find a, a civic way of resolving some of these problems within Turkish society. But today, you see civil democrats pitted against caliphate revivalists, Rival religious brotherhoods pitted against themselves, levies against Sunnis, and of course Turks against Kurds. The enemies of the Turkish Republic, both internally and externally, have exploited this situation for their own gain, and they continue to press their advantage against Turkey from all sides. This is a profound development for U.S. policy because it was just a little over 70 years ago this past spring that President Harry Truman first stood before Congress and urged Congress to look at the map, look at how important Greece and Turkey are for the geostrategic construction of the whole of Eurasia. And at the time, 
Truman was worried about Soviet subversion of Turkey. Turkey was a threat not only for, from communist revolutionaries, but also Stalin was proposing to actually invade and to take over the Dardanelles and, and the Turkish Straits into the Black Sea. Truman understood that to secure the peace in Europe after World War II and to pursue order in the Middle East, um, Turkey was essential. And on the basis of that, Truman urged Congress, and there was bipartisan support for uh, the Greece and Turkey Aid Act, which ultimately became one of the principal pillars of the Marshall Plan, which helped to secure the peace of the last 70 years. In this, I think Truman and the people, America at the time understood that the character of the Turkish Republic, the political character of the Turkish Republic, was essential for the strategic construction of the whole of Eurasia. Now that the political character of Turkey has changed profoundly, it has had enormous geostrategic ramifications for everything from the defense of Europe to America's ongoing pursuit of efforts to pursue order in the Middle East and to deal with the various problems that Mike and I would like to speak about today. Um, and it's a problem for us here in the United States because for 70 years we've been in the habit of thinking about Turkey as a bedrock partner in that alliance. Now the challenge is to think about post-Turkey strategies, or at least about hedging and more prudential things to, to deal with uh, what I had referred to as the collapse of the Turkish Republic. That, let me pass it back to Peter, and we can come back to the Kurds in a moment. All right, well, let me, uh, thanks, that was very eloquently put. Do you want me to give you an opportunity to, to, to lay out how you see uh, um, the general relationship between the U.S. and Turkey and what's happening in Turkey? Sure. Um, l let me start not from the point of view of Ankara and AKP, but from the point of view of U.S. interests and position in the region. I think there's a decision that has been made by the American people on the left and on the right that we're not going to have another uh, George W. Bush-style invasion of a Middle Eastern country. And there's a, a consensus, which hasn't been stated I think clearly, but, but, but I think it's there, that, that the United States should pull back somewhat from the, from the Middle East. Not, uh, not the, the Trump administration clearly believes, says openly, that the Obama administration pulled back too far. But at the same time, the Trump administration is showing a reluctance in places like Syria particularly, um, uh, to get to get deeply involved uh, militarily, I'm talking about. So that leads to the very obvious conclusion that if we still have vital interests in the Middle East, and we're going to play, and we expect ourselves to play a significant role in the Middle East, we have to do it with partners in in the region. And if we're going to do it with partners, and we're not going to we're we're not going to have a massive amount of military force to work with, then we have to take on board, the, uh, to a certain extent, the agendas of the partners. Um, and from that point of view, when you look at the, uh, the areas that concern us the most, uh, and, and particularly right now Syria um, and Iraq, I think it becomes a very simple question. Can we afford to ignore Turkish interests? And I think the answer to that has to be, Absolutely not. They are absolutely a vital, uh, a vital partner, and we haven't 
I disagree with um, with uh, with Eric's rhetoric uh, in collapse of the republic, post-Turkish strategy, and so on. We haven't we haven't seen a post-Turkish strategy yet. If we if we alienate Turkey, the situation can get a lot worse than it than it is now. Um, so that would be my that would be my starting point, and then I, I guess I would just say about the choice that we're in at at the moment. I think we're looking at the, the strategic choice that we have at the moment. We're we're in we're looking at the geostrategic consequences of what I consider to have been an extremely short-sighted strategy on the part of uh, Barack Obama. Uh, Obama elevated defeating ISIS to the single, um, the, 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 single the, 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 the uppermost strategic priority in the region, the, the, uh, the goal to which all other goals were subordinated. Um, and he aligned the United States with Iran and to a significant degree with Russia as well. And in defeating in looking to defeat ISIS in Syria, he chose the PYD, YPG, that is the, the Syrian Kurdish offshoot of the PKK, the, the separatist Kurds in, in Turkey, as the partner of the United States. And he did so, and, and he did so despite all of the pleas from Ankara not to do that. And I would go. I would go a step further. I think he did so with a significant amount of dishonesty as well. And we'll get into that later. I mean, I, I think that we we. I, I strongly suspect. I don't have smoking gun. I strongly suspect we made assurances to the Turks about this, which we haven't kept. That that decision to arm the to to arm the. I'm just going to, for the sake of discussion, I'm not going to even play games. I'm going to call it the PKK. I'm not going to, to arm the PKK in, in Syria. That had enormous consequences because it aligned us with Iran. The, the PKK is, the PKK has good relations with Russia and, and Iran, long established relations. It, it, it aligned us with them. It, it gave us a partner that would do the job that we said we wanted to do, destroy ISIS, Without U.S. without uh, without a commitment of U.S. force, but it also put the Turks on their back feet, and it it made sure that the Turks would not intervene, because it would because in Syria because it would uh, it, it would put them at odds um, uh, at odds with us, and it neutralized our partner in the region that was making the strongest case for us to intervene in uh, uh, in in Syria, um, and. Now we're now we're in this situation where if we leave, and this, here's the strategic dilemma that we're in, if we pick up and we leave in Syria, then the YPG, the PKK, the YPG will migrate automatically to the Russians and the Iranians, and this is this this it has no choice but to do this because its number one enemy is the Turks, and the Turks are showing that they will intervene to destroy. A PKK statelet in 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 Syria. So if they if 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 the if the if the Syrian Kurds migrate to the Russians, the Russians will then establish themselves and are actually working as we speak to establish themselves 
as the primary interlocutor between Ankara and the Kurds about the future, uh, about future order in Syria. That will then give the Kurdish question is the biggest, the single biggest question in Turkish foreign policy and in Turkish domestic politics. That will give the Russians enormous leverage over Turkey, and they will use that leverage, as they are already working to do, to detach Turkey completely from NATO uh, and the United States. So what we're looking at here is the whole future orientation of Turkey in the international order in the, in the Middle East, as well as the order, uh, as well as the order in, 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 in Syria. So we have, we have no choice but to stay in, uh, uh, but to stay in Syria. We have chosen a partner to build a new order in Syria that is not up to the job. The Kurds in Syria cannot be the, cannot be the, the, the single pillar of a new order in, uh, in the area. So we have to work with, uh, uh, with other partners. If we, if we don't work with other partners, then we end up alienating the, the, the Turks. We have to reach out to the Turks, but if we, if we do what the Turks want, which is to dismantle the PKK statelet in, in Syria, take back all the arms we gave to the Syrian Kurds and, uh, and, so, and so on, we alienate, the, we alienate the Kurds completely. So we're in a kind of no-win situation. The only choice for us is to establish ourselves as a mediator between the Syrian Kurds and the, uh, and the Turks in order to prevent the Russians from doing that, but we have to do so with a much greater deference to Turkish interests than we have shown uh, until now. The, 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 the challenge before uh, the, the Trump administration is to convince the Turks that we can be a partner with them in building an order while we maintain decent relations with the ally that we created under the, uh, uh, under, under the Obama administration. That's what I see as the, as the, the, the fundamental dilemma. I wish we weren't here. I wish we had worked with the Turks to build a new order in Syria rather than choosing the Syrian Kurds. But the choice has been made, and we can't, we can't turn back the clock. Let me say one quick thing on that. I mean, I, I want to be clear here. Uh, <coughs> the Turks have legitimate fears and legitimate security threats in various parts of Kurdistan. And one of the arguments for us involving ourselves in Rojava and in other parts of Kurdistan is because if we don't do it, the Iranians or the Russians will. And they're more li their involvements more likely are going to abet some of the hardline revisionist tendencies in some of the Kurdish factions in Syria. We also have to keep in mind, uh, Mike and I agree that the our, our counterterrorism approach to the region has been myopic and short-sighted, and that what we need to be doing, as Truman did and as others did, is to take a step back and think long-term about the reconstitution of order in the region. I don't think Turkey is a reliable partner right now under Erdogan um, to participate in that reconstitution of order. But let me take another step back here. One of the reasons why the United States involved itself with the YBG and Rojava in the first place was not only because they were effective partners in the fight against ISIS, but also because back in 2013, the Erdogan government had, had involved itself with the YPG as well and was in the process of trying to reconcile with YPG and with the PKK internally. This was a, a full-blown effort that, in a way, created the diplomatic uh, prelude for American involvements with YPG and gave us the green light at the time. 
where the real departure between Turkish and, Amer and, and U.S. policy toward the YPG began was in 2016. That was, of course, when Erdogan was pressing for his imperial presidency at home. The HDP, the civilian um, uh, trend within southeastern Turkish-Kurdish politics, uh, 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 did performed extremely well in the parliamentary elections. Um, the YPG in Syria was not behaving uh, in a fashion that Erdogan wanted, which was to sub be subservient to, to, to Turkey, period. And uh, the HDP's performance, as I mentioned, in the 2016 parliamentary elections had jeopardized uh, AKP's majority, uh, its plurality in, in, in parliament. Uh, following that, Erdogan, for his own domestic political reasons, uh, abruptly shifted his policy, both toward the domestic efforts to establish peace in the southeast, which had met with a lot of international support, and he also began to shift his policy toward the YPG, favoring instead the support, I mean, it's been discussed in the public domain quite a bit, uh, focusing instead support for uh, various uh, violent factions uh, uh, in Syria, however, and, and withdrawing support for the YPG. That's where the departure began. And it, without having clarity on the fact that Turkish external policy is largely a function of Erdogan's own desires to aggrandize his power at home, I don't think we're going to be able to integrate Turkey into a larger policy to help reconstitute order in the region. Yeah. I, I'm very interested, and Mike picked up on this too, on uh, your comment of trying to establish a post-Turkey strategy and hedging, and I'd like to ask you about that. But before I do, let me just come back to Mike real quick, because you mentioned that uh, it's important to bring on board some of the assumptions of our allies in the region and the Turks, and clearly the primary point you made was America's tilt towards the YPG undermining our relationship with Turkey. That is, um, and I suppose this is the question, a necessary condition for rebuilding um, or uh, trying to repair relations with Turkey. But is it sufficient? That is to say, is really the YPG the crucial barrier, the insurmountable barrier between the U.S. and Turkey? And if that is wiped away, we can build a better uh, relationship. I think it is. I think it is, but I would be, um, I'd be lying to you if I said that I had absolute certainty uh, about that. Uh, the, but there's no doubt in my mind that the Kurdish question for the Turks is the biggest question. And it, it doesn't matter who's sitting in the presidential palace in Ankara. They're going to be intensely concerned about that. There's nothing specifically Erdoganish about the Turkish concern about a PKK state in, 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 in Syria. That's a, there's going to be an absolute Turkish consensus about that. And that is going to be the issue that, that above, every, uh, above, above every other issue. So yes, Erdogan is a, is a, can be a prickly character. He can be a thorny character. Um, but he's also not nearly as strong as he makes out. As, as, as he makes out. We, we all know, the, uh, uh, we all know the, the tribulations in Turkey as a, uh, as a result of the, of the coup attempt by the Gulenists. And we all know that the effect that that's had on the military, uh, and, uh, and and so forth. So um, I think that there's a lot of uh, Erdogan. Uh, I would I would suspect would welcome a better relationship with the United States. Although he's you know he's a Middle Eastern leader, he's never going to admit that he's 
that he's operating from a sense of weakness and vulnerability. He'll never admit that. Uh, but I think it's there, and I think it's something that we can, um, uh, that, that, gives us an, that gives us an opening. But I just go back to what I said. The Kurdish, we're kidding ourselves. We're, we're kidding ourselves if we think that when our officials in the, uh, under Obama sat there opposite the, our, their Turkish counterparts and said that the, that the YPG is not the PKK, we don't think it's the PKK, that that didn't, that that didn't make heads explode all across Turkey. It's, uh, it's, uh, this, issue is, this issue is totally different from any other issue in the, um, uh, any other contentious issue between the United States and, and Turkey. So can I guarantee that if we address that, it would, it, it, that it would be the magic, uh, the magic key that would unlock uh, improved relations with, with Turkey? No, I can't guarantee it. But until we try it, we're not, we're, we're not going to know. And if we don't try it, there's no hope. So Mike concedes that President Erdogan is a prickly and thorny, um, but we're left with no other real option. In your view, uh, you highlighted or at least hinted at sort of a post-Turkish hedging strategy. What's the Eric Brown vision for how to address these issues? I think... I think what we require is prudence and looking clearly at the nature of the regime in Turkey today. Um, uh, I think that that requires, among other things, on a military level, that we need to be prudent and reinforce, fall back to positions that we can reinforce in southeastern Europe, like Romania, Greece, Israel. I think that there are also positions that we need to fall forward to with a view toward filling the vacuum that's emerged in the greater Levant, and that includes the northeastern, the Kurds in northeastern Iraq, as well as in, uh, as well as in Rojava. Um, uh, if we don't involve ourselves uh, with those peoples um, and help build up their own internal defenses so that they can withstand the buffeting of Iranian pressures, amongst others, uh, then uh, the competition, that the struggle, the violence, the war uh, of empire and religion that you're seeing in Syria today will spill over into Kurdistan. And that, of course, also means internally into Turkey itself. Um, and if we're not thinking proactively that way, I, I, I don't feel that Ankara is thinking proactively that way. Um, uh, uh, you know, recently... When Erdogan accused, before this launch of uh, um, uh, military operations in Afrin, Erdogan made public, he accused the United States of forming an army of terror. Um, uh, the U.S. Department of Defense made clear that we weren't involving ourselves in Afrin, and we had not been involving ourselves in Afrin. Um, but I think that that needs to be recognized for what Erdogan actually wanted to communicate to his own supporters in Turkey itself that he's not so much interested in maintaining this alliance with the United States. Um, he's more than happy to twist um, the reality of the situation in ways that serve his own ends and that in ways that serve his own domestic uh, support. I read, I read it all very differently. Um, uh, the, um, uh, I think that the... the Turkish military incursions into Syria, Euphrates Shield um, especially, have two goals. One, one is to, to break up Rojava so there isn't a unified Kurdish statelet all across the, the north of, uh, uh, of Syria. 
But the other, the other part, and that includes the, the that includes some of the anti-American rhetoric coming out of Ankara, is a negotiation with us. There's a the, the 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 Turks are telling us, signaling in a number of different ways, in their um, in uh, reaching out, mil- in, in, in improving their mill-to-mill relationship with the Russians, making anti-American statements and some of their military actions. They are saying to us. We have other options, and we will exercise them. But when I, when I look at their options, I think that they understand that the best choice for them is under an American umbrella. Uh, they have no illusions about who the Russians are. They'd rather, they would rather pursue their options under an American umbrella, if given the choice, than under, than, than, than under a, a, a Russian. And, uh, Look, whatever we think of Erdogan's domestic project, he is the most powerful and adept Turkish leader since Ataturk. There's no doubt about that. So he, he's, uh, uh, I'm, not, I'm not trying to, I don't want to build him up to being bigger than he is, but he's very significant. And whatever the deficiencies of the, of the Turkish domestic um, d- domestic system, they're as nothing compared to other domestic systems in the region, such as the Iranians or the, the Russian and, um, uh, and so forth. Um, and we have, we, if we have a constructive working relationship with them, we can, ha- we have a, we can have a chance of, uh, of ameliorating some of the domestic issues that cause us concern in, in, in Turkey. If we alienate the Turks, if we go, uh, with the Kurds, or we leave the region, uh, or, or we leave the region altogether, our influence over uh, over Erdogan is going to diminish precipitously. Well, that's great. Let me uh, let me touch on an issue just next door that certainly impacts Turkey, Syria, and the Levant, and that is Iran. And of course, the big uh, development in Iran in the past several weeks was the uprising there. We heard from some former Obama administration officials that uh, uh, the advice to the Trump administration is to stay quiet. I think the catchphrase was, it's not about us, it's about them, uh, that it's basically an internal issue within Iran. Uh, do you share that assessment? I suspect you don't. But uh, <laughs> where do you see the Iran protests fitting into or knitting into what is happening today in Syria, uh, in the Levant? And is this a strategic level issue that the U.S. should be laser-like focused on? Um... So, uh, with regard to, do I share the assessment that we shouldn't support, rhetorically or otherwise, the the protesters? I use a, a political science term that that uh, that assessment is asinine, uh, and it it goes it goes against uh, everything that we know about these kinds of situations, and we don't know it from theoretical. Uh, from theoretical treatises on it. We know from talking to people who are in analogous situations. If you talk to Natan Sharansky uh, about what it was like to be in the Soviet gulag when Ronald Reagan called the Soviet Union an evil empire and all of the equivalents of, uh, of uh, uh, Phil Gordon and the other uh, and, uh, 
and Susan Rice and the other pro, uh, pr uh, former Obama officials who said, no, we shouldn't say anything because we're just making their situation worse. Sharansky, we're saying that then under Reagan. Sharansky said, nonsense. It made my situation better. I got more respect from the guards who were guarding me because I was, because Ronald Reagan had taken an interest in my situation and the situation of people like me. Uh, we had, I had here just a couple of weeks ago, uh, Kamal Labwani from Syria, who was in the, Syri the Syrian equivalent of the Soviet gulag, and he said the same thing, that he got, he got respect from his guards because the United States had taken, because George W. Bush had taken a direct, uh, a, a direct interest in him. So the whole notion that an embrace from the United States is a kiss of death and so on, this, it, this, it's just asinine. It's got nothing to do with reality. Um, and, and again, we have an enormous amount of, uh, of uh, uh, we have an enormous amount of testimony to that effect. What they're really talking about, they're not actually concerned, the people who are saying be quiet are not actually concerned about what they say they're concerned about. What they are concerned about is preserving the nuclear deal, Obama's signature uh, Obama's uh, signature foreign policy achievement. And, and they don't want it, they're afraid that the opponents of the deal, such as myself, are going to use the the uh, the uh, the uh, the empathetic feeling that Americans have for the protesters in Iran, in order to in order to shift the policy against the Iran deal. That's what's really being argued. Now we have a, na a national defense strategy that ju that just came out, which says that we are in Syria to contain Iran, and that's a very significant statement by the. Uh, by the uh, by the uh, Trump administration, uh, if that isn't a, a priority, that should be the lens through which we we read all of these things. So we should be supporting the protesters, of course, but it should also be the basis for our discussions with the Turks. When I said we have to be deferential to the Turks, we I, I think we have to be we have to take very seriously their concern about a, a, a Kurdish state dedicated, run by an organization that is dedicated to separating the Kurds from Turkey, right, inside, inside Turkey. That, that's a legitimate concern. We have to take that into consideration, but we also have to say to the Turks, we're willing to work with you on that. We obviously, we can't throw, we, we, have, an, we have an arrangement now, a relationship with the, with the, with the Kurds in Turkey. We cannot, we cannot, uh, we cannot uh, dispense with it altogether, but we can work with you very seriously on your concerns. But you also have to take into consideration our concern. Our concern is containing Iran. Uh, that means that you have to, uh, you, you can't be doing backdoor deals with the uh, with the Iranians and with the, and and the Russians as well in that regard. Uh, so I think that has to be the, the the basic framework in which we approach all these things. Eric. How do you see Iran, and how does it connect to? Uh, well, I mean, I, I agree I, with the basic analysis that containing Iran, or at least developing new checks or sources of leverage on Iranian expansionism, is key toward beginning this longer-term discussion of an, an effort to reconstitute order, which has been flattened in the Greater Levant. And Mike and I agree on that. Um, however, I have doubts about whether Turkey, under Erdogan right now is really a partner. On one level, they say that they would like to help help us work with us to to fend off Iranian expansionism, um, uh, and I think if they can contribute something to that, um, uh, uh, I think the administration would be open to that, and the U.S. should be open to that. However, look at what has happened within Turkey itself. 
um, uh, Turkey has actually abetted the rise of Iranian power across the region. Uh, I think we're going to see in this case up in federal court in New York um, that high up rep members in the Erdogan regime has actually played a big role in helping to helping Iran to skirt these sanctions, as you know. Now, it may be that they've had a change of heart, um, uh, but that means that the onus is on them to demonstrate that they've, in fact, had a change of heart and are willing to collaborate with us. In the meantime, I want to go back to this thing that Mike had mentioned about the Kurdish question in Turkey. I agree. The Kurdish question in Turkey has been one of the most formative questions for the republic, and it will be for the future. But it's also one of the formative or fundamental questions of our long-range effort to reconstitute order in the region. Why? It's very difficult to pull together all this data because regimes in the region suppress it. But when you gather demographic data, population trends, ethnic population trends across Southwest Asia, you see that Kurdish-speaking households are experiencing a general demographic vitality. There's, there's a, you know, a, a fairly large uh, fertility, high fertility rate in Kur ethnic Kurdish households. At the same time, in Arabic-speaking, Turkish and Persian Shiite households, uh, the, demography, the, the fertility has come down. In fact, in the Islamic Republic of Iran, uh, the fertility rate amongst Persian Shiites has had the most precipitous collapse in recorded history, according to Nick Eberstadt at AEI. In Turkey, amongst ethnic Turks, ethnic Turks, the fertility rate has dropped below two. So when you look at these different demographic regimes across Southwest Asia, there's no straight lines in demography and no straight line projections. But when you look at these, these numbers, you begin to see a future of the Middle East in which a future in Southwest Asia in which there's going to be many, many more millions of Kurds. And already, this demographic vitality is bringing enormous pressure to bear on the existing, what's left of the existing state-based order in Southwest Asia. And the ruling regimes that have managed to hold on in the face of these demographic um, trends um, are struggling profoundly. Why? Because all of them are founded on some form of 20th century ethno-nationalism, which presumes either Arab dominance, Turkish dominance, or Persian dominance. And if they don't get over this ethnic nationalist, this exclusive ethnic nationalist model of politics in the region, then these demographic cult trends are going to collide with the existing regimes in the region and be a recipe for more warfare more ethnic conflict. And as we've seen in the ethnic conflict across the region, whether it's in Iraq or in Syria or in Turkey itself, any time that that erupts, it creates an opportunity for revisionist powers like the Iranians to sink their teeth into, to arm a faction, to arm a grievance, and to use it for their own gain. So part of the problem of reconstituting security and order in the region has to deal with the nature of the Turkish regime, has to deal with the nature of the politics in Turkey itself, because security will only throw, flow from politics, not simply from superior, superior firepower. Right now, you look around, I mean, you can go to the, the Kurdish refugee camps in Iraqi, in Iraqi Kurdistan, you can meet Syrians who are there because in Syria, under Assad, they were never granted citizenship. So when Assad came around, when the rebellion first began and tried to recruit them into his, army, into his armies to suppress the rebellion, what did they do? They just picked up and left for next door. And of course, they have no papers that demonstrate that they're from Syria in the first place. In northeastern Iraq, I mean, the, the struggles of the KRG to have some sort of an equitable and decent relationship with Baghdad has been scuttled. Um, 
uh, over the last 30 years, um, coming out of the genocidal Saddam Hussein regime on up till now. Um, And uh, uh, once again, um, they're uh, an afterthought, I I fear, in U.S. policy and diplomacy, uh, in part because we're not taking a long view about where the sources of self-sustaining politics in the region can actually be developed. In Iran, you know, the Islamic Republic, the revolution in 1979 was supposed to destroy and to shatter all ethnic nationalisms in Iran. It was supposed to supplant them. But one of the things that we forget was one of the first jihad that Ayatollah Khomeini had declared was not against the United States, but it was against Kurds, which only happened to harden the separatist tendencies within the Iranian Kurdish population. Now, if you look at all the ruling regimes across Southwest Asia, I would have told you in 2013 that Turkey had the best chance of actually dealing with these enormous population trends, this enormous upheaval that's happening in the region. Why? Because it was still a constitutional republic. But all of those institutions, those indigenous institutions that Turkey had to absorb this, to come to a negotiated settlement, to provide, to allow the Kurds to develop a civilian politics, to reject the hardline PKK politics, to not be an opportunity for revisionist powers in the Iranian government. They've systematically dismantled all of that. So Turkey's indigenous defenses to actually be able to deal with the security threats that it's facing have been broken down. And this is a consequence of Erdogan's policies. Can I ask one Sure. Just, uh, I'll just quickly hit it point by point because I see it differently than Eric does. Uh, first of all, I don't think it's within the purview of American policy to come up with new models for dealing with uh, um, ethnic mix in the region. I think we have to be aware of these uh, of these larger trends that, that Eric is mentioning, um, and we, we have to be sensitive to them and concerned about them. But we've got more immediate – the more immediate three-meter questions are always going to be the ones that are pressing on, on, uh, on decision-makers. Uh, so that's point number one. Point number two – the alliance that we have in Syria is with the PKK. So we, I mean, we throw out the word Kurd as a, as a shorthand, but, but the PKK is a Stalinist cult, and 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 it has it has expanded and strengthened itself enormously under under our under our power umbrella, and that is what should and that is what should worry us. It's not that we've aligned ourselves with Kurds. That's not the problem. The problem is that we've aligned ourselves with the with the uh, with the PKK, and that is the thing that bothers Ankara more than anything else. And right, and, and as as I've suggested, rightly so in my um, uh, in in my view, uh, we should be looking at ways to um, we should be looking at ways to curtail the power of the PKK rather than to strengthen it. And the final final point is. Uh, um, just a slight disagreement with Eric on this. Erdogan, in the history of the Turkish Republic, is the guy who went the furthest toward reaching out to the to to, to the did up until 2016. So he has it, it. It's within his repertoire. It's within his repertoire to adjust the relations between between Kurds and Turks, and he has very good relations with Barzani in in uh, uh, in in Iraq. The kind of model between Barzani and, uh, and Ankara is the kind that we should have been, we, we should have had in mind 
when we were looking at, um, at, at Syria. We kidded ourselves under Obama, and the, and the strategy has continued to a certain degree under and Trump. We kidded ourselves to think that we're not actually going to be involved in Syria, that we can just go in, give some arms to the, uh, to the PKK, they'll hammer ISIS, and then we'll get out and be done. And once, 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 we, once we looked at after the, after the ISIS fell and we looked at the situation, we said, oh, we can't do that. If we get up and leave, there are going to be all of these horrible ramifications for the United States and the region. So we're stuck there now. So we better start thinking about order in, 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 in the region. And as I said in my opening remarks, do you think we cannot take into consideration the interests of the most powerful and stable state in that region when we're building order? And the, the answer is no. They're, the Turks are not going to allow a PKK statelet to be built in Syria. They are not going to allow it. They've said it to us time and time again. It's not going to happen. If we think that we're going to stop them somehow without massive military force, we're, we're, we're kidding ourselves. Well, can I, can I follow up on that? I mean, what are the lessons of KRG for our policy in Syria? And maybe I can address that to you after. Well, it, it's, it's, it's a problem because... It's a problem because the, the, the political complexion of, of the, the Kurdish regions of Syria is different than the political complexion in, the, in, 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 in Iraq. And, and, and because, the, because the PKK is already so entrenched. So you're in, you know, the, uh, uh, Salah Muslim, the leader of the, of the, of the, of the, uh, of, of the YPG said that I will not tolerate a kind of uh, a kind of binary power sharing relationship among the Syrian Kurds that they have in Iraq, because they have the Barzani and the Talibani, and uh, Talibani in, is is aligned with with Iran and with Russia more than Barzani. Barzani looks to Ankara and to the and to the United States, uh, and uh, the, the our our allies in Syria are saying that they will not tolerate such a thing. But we we. We should be looking to move in that in, in that in that direction to encourage Kurdish alternatives to PKK complete domination. And the other thing, I, but that that's a very tough sell because that's a very tough uh, goal to achieve, precisely because we have adopted a policy of minimal military intervention ourselves. The other thing we can do is we can also talk about limiting. The geographic, the, 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 limiting the growth of the PKK state in, in Syria, working together with the Turks, and um, uh, and, and making sure that the that the the, uh, the PKK domination of Kurdish politics in Syria doesn't isn't strengthened is that they're not borrowing power from us the way they have in order to in order to strengthen their position any more than they already have. Eric, same question to you. Do you see? Lessons from KRG, a model, a template, ways of approaching Syria's Kurds in a similar fashion? No, uh, for reasons that Mike mentioned. I mean, they're different polities. They're completely different polities with different institutional histories and different internal politics. But I do think uh, since the fall of Kirkuk and the subsequent implosion of politics in, uh, or partial implosion of politics in northeastern Iraq, uh, a lot of Kurds in northeastern Iraq and elsewhere um, have come out of that feeling that they should not trust Ankara anymore, and they should not trust the United States anymore. 
um, in part because we haven't, uh, we had an opportunity to be agnostic about their referendum recently, um, uh, to not take a strong stand in either way. Um, uh, but I think the U.S. policy instead um, decided to strongly oppose that along with Erdogan. Um, I think that that was short-sighted. I think that we'll see uh, the uh, full repercussions of that policy in the upcoming elections in Baghdad and uh, in springtime. Um, uh, but uh, no, there's unfortunately um, what's happened in KRG has probably done a lot to undermine American credibility amongst um, uh, the Kurds in Rojava uh, and will have implications a long time to come. And now with Kurd Turkish military operations in Afrin, I think that what you've actually probably seen is a situation where uh, our efforts to try to curtail hardcore PKK uh, terrorist factions are going to be severely curtailed going forward, and that we've actually created a situation that's much, much more explosive than it had to be. Okay, well, since we're expanding the map, let me bring in, in a two-part question, a country that Mike's touched on. I'm not sure you've had a chance to address it, and that is, of course, Russia's role uh, in uh, the region vis-a-vis -vis Turkey and Syria's Kurds. Given your assessment of uh, the Erdogan government, uh, what do you think drives this, if we can call it a Turkish rapprochement with the Russians? Is it uh, a tough man image, and Erdogan sympathizing with President Putin? Is it some of the external pressures that Mike mentioned? How do you view of Turkey's approach towards Russia? And then uh, secondly, uh, how does Russia see it? I don't know. It's hard to say. I mean, I, I think Erdogan uh, clearly respects Russia. I'm sure he needed uh, approval from the Kremlin to launch these uh, military operations in, in Afrin, which, of course, is where the Russians have involved themselves, not us. Um, beyond that, uh, I think we here in the United States have taken it somewhat as a matter of faith that the Turks and the Turkish body politic in general is fearful of the Russians. Um, we forget the fact that the vast majority of Turks today were born actually after the Cold War and don't have a memory of Russian aggression in the 20th century. And in fact, a lot of people in the Erdogan government, uh, surrounding Erdogan and others, instead of being nurtured and raised in a cultural milieu which talked about the threat of Soviet communism and of Russian designs on Turkey, instead were reared in a milieu that taught them that it's the Western world that's most dangerous um, to Turkey. And that the Republic, rather than being a gift of the Western world, thanks to Truman's uh, farsighted policy back in uh, after the end of the uh, after the end of World War II, that the Republic instead has been a prison house for modern Turkey, and that the goal of Turkish politics needs to be to unshackle itself from the entrapments of the modern Republic and to revision the order on the basis of that. Um, uh, so I don't think we're dealing with a Turkey that's thinking in terms of national interests, in terms of equilibrium. I think we're think we're talking with a ruling faction in Turkey instead. It's thinking in terms of glory and thinking in terms instead of authenticity and purity. Um, in this, I don't think it's right to understand President Erdogan as being a statesman. He's more of a social and religious movement builder at home. Uh, and I don't think that you can rely on him to make sound analyses of what is, in fact, in the Turks' national interests going forward. Um, uh, a lot of their external Kurdish policy and their internal Kurdish policy 
can be explained to Erdogan's domestic maneuverings and his efforts to whip up uh, and to maintain support amongst hardline nationalist elements in Turkey. Um, it's not a product of a, of a broad Turkish vision for how to actually restore order in, in, uh, in the country itself and along its periphery. And what do you think the Russians are up to, or how do they see the Turks and the Kurds? Listen, I mean, it's very clear that Russia has not stopped the uh, uh, Iran Iranian expansionism. Um, but uh, as Mike and I have disagreed in the past, I think it's important to treat Russia, even though they haven't stopped Iranian expansionism, as a potentially different kettle of fish than the Iranians are. I think they have different interests in the region. Uh, I think that the regime in Russia is different from the Iranian one. I think that Iran's, uh, Russia's interests and its military involvements in Syria can be balanced. I'm not saying that the United States should accept what they've done or let them off the hook, but I think that they can be balanced where it's a little bit more difficult to balance revolutionary factions and Iran's uniquely subversive tactics that it used to rip societies apart. Um, and I think that the only way that you're actually going to be able to explore the theoretical divergence between Russia and Iran in that area in, in Southwest Asia is if we have leverage of our own. And right now, I don't, I, I have doubts about whether Turkey will come to under Erdogan. I think it is in the long-term interest of the United States to work for the restoration of the Turkish Republic, and that means understanding that there are, in fact, alternative models for organizing Turkey domestically within the ruling AKP, not within Erdogan himself, and that it's not within the U.S. purview to, or, to articulate what those models should be, but we should understand that there are there's an enormous opposition in Turkey that has a real theoretical potential to um, change the nature of, the, of, of, of how Turkey uh, is governed domestically and lead it along a better path, and that that needs to be a priority of, of American policy. Without that, Turkey, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned its insecurities will continue to grow. Its capability to meet the threats that Russia and Iran poses to it are going to continue to decline. Um, and I worry that a lot of the convulsion and the conflict that we're seeing in Syria, parts of Iraq and elsewhere, is just going to spread into Turkey itself. Like Duran, you talked about this a bit at the outset. How do you see uh, Turkey's view towards Moscow, and how does, uh, how does Russia see Turkey? Uh, I'll start with Moscow. Uh, Vladimir Putin has a huge room, uh, which is his coloring book room, um, and he has huge maps that show the border of the old Soviet Union and the current border of the Russian Federation. And then it shows all of the former allies that the Soviet Union used to have and where they are now. And he, he colors them, um, uh, he, he colors them uh, differently. And what he really wants to do, his aspiration, is to color back in all of those uh, areas that were part of the Soviet Union uh, for back for Russia and all of those allies that were allies of the Soviet Union will become allies once again. So he wants to turn um, all of that map that used to be red, he wants to, he wants to now turn it into blue for Russia. Um, and um, I think that's the way to think about what he's up to. Uh, but he knows he can't do it through simple unilateral, um, uh, unilateral use of force. Um, and his best ally in the Middle East for that project is Iran. And particularly in Syria. 
in their, the Iranian interest and the Russian interest in Syria um, in, the, in, in the short term uh, is nearly identical, nearly. There, there are tensions between them, of course. There are tensions in every, uh, in, in every relationship, even very close relationships uh, in, in the international arena. Uh, but the Moscow and Tehran both share a vital interest, each for their own reasons, in the strengthening and expansion of the Assad regime. Uh, and they are in a uh, uh, they are in a codependency in that project. The Iranians provide the forces on the ground. The Russians provide the air power. Neither one of them can achieve their vital interests without uh, w without the without the other. On top of that, the Russians want to break up NATO, weaken or break up NATO, uh, and that is the opportunity that our short-sighted Kurdish policy in Syria is offering them. So I agree with Eric. Yes, they have pulled back in in Afrin to allow the Turks to do what the, Turks, what the Turks want to do, because it's not in the interest of the Russians at the moment to fight with the, uh, uh, to fight with the Turks. They're busy building together with the Iranians what they call, what, what, the, what the Syrians call vital, vital Syria, and Afrin is not, um, is not part of that. But it's also part of a policy of wooing Turkey away from us and saying to the Turks that you will, you will have a better opportunity to pursue your interests with regard to the Kurds working with us than working with the, uh, uh, than, than, than working with the Americans. Uh, Putin is watching the tensions grow between Ankara and, and Washington, and he's loving every, every minute of it. Um, I, don't, uh, I, I remain convinced that Erdogan would, pref would, would, would prefer to work under an American umbrella than under a um, than under a Russian umbrella for a whole uh, host of reasons, but just to put it this way, the Russians, regardless of how the the, the uh, uh, younger generation in Turkey sees it, the Russians are a lot closer to the Turks than we are, um, and the Russians are nastier than than we are. Nobody likes the Russians. Nobody likes the Iranians. Uh, people don't necessarily love us, but they know they can work with us, and they have a history of uh, uh, of working with us. And we're farther away, so we're. But the, the the power that is farthest away is always the one that's easier to deal with, and the one that is almost on your border. Great. Well, thanks. With that, I think we should open up uh, the floor to a couple of questions, and I'll start with this gentleman in the front. If you could please identify yourself um, before asking your question. Hi. Uh... Uh, Joel Sonkin from uh, Columbia University. Uh, for Mr. Doran, um, you often talk about uh, reconcilable or irreconcilable dif uh, differences uh, between the U.S. and uh, its adversaries, um, and uh, U.S. vital interests aren't reconcilable with Russian vital interests, say. It seems that the PKK's interests and Turkish interests cannot be reconciled. You suggested uh, perhaps uh, for the U.S. to play mediator between the two. Um, with the U.S. Uh, position, strategic position in the region having been diminished and its allies uh, diminished so significantly over the last five years, and we need to uh, strength, shore up the position, the alliance with Turkey, um, is there some way to, to play that mediation role, or can you drill down on that a little further? Like, do we have to 
cut the PKK loose or the Turks loose on the PKK? Well, what I would hope is that the PKK or the YPG, PYD, they are dependent on us, highly dependent on us. They have a Russian-Iranian option, but it's not ideal for them either. They use that to get leverage over us also, just the same way the Turks do, to tell us that they have other options. But we are their best option. So I think in an ideal world, what we want to do is say to the Turks and the Syrian Kurds that for the two of you, the best option is to work out your differences or at least come to a modus vivendi under an American umbrella, if that's possible. Now, I'm not kidding myself. It's an extremely difficult thing to do. But it's not like we don't have some experience with this kind of thing in the world. We are allies of both the Greeks and the Turks. We are allies of Arabs and Israelis, and we work at managing those contradictions. So it's going to be that kind of – it has to be that kind of relationship. What the Turks are going to want in that relationship, I don't think we can deliver. They're going to say, disarm – take back all those arms you gave them, completely disarm them, build multipolar Kurdish – multipolar Kurdish political systems in the areas where they rule and so on. And I don't think we can deliver all of that. But I do think – I said before that I think that we – the Turks say that the Obama administration promised them that we would not allow the PKK to move west of the Euphrates. I believe them. I don't – this is what I said, that I believe that we have been dishonest with Ankara. I don't know it for a fact. But they say that, and I believe them. There's no reason why they should be in Afrin. There's no reason why they should be in some of the areas where they're fighting now. So I think we can talk to the Turks about minimizing or reducing the size of the PKK statelet that is developing. And then we have to say to the PKK that you don't like that. You're not going to like that. But it's going to be a lot less pleasant for you, a lot more unpleasant for you, if we get up and leave. And we leave you to the tender mercies of Erdogan's military. Yes, sir. If you could wait for the microphone and then introduce yourself. My name is Jackson Richmond, and I'm an editor and columnist at the National Discourse, which is an online publication. Especially with the most recent gassing by Assad, what is Saudi Arabia's role in the Syrian crisis? Can it work with Turkey? The Saudis are important for us in terms of putting together a larger regional coalition in support of building a non-Russian and Iranian-dominated system in the region. 
but the Saudis are busy in Yemen. They have a limited capacity, very limited, and they have basically no capacity for 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 projecting force into Syria. And this is primarily a hard power. Uh, it's first and foremost a hard power question. They have resources. They have political. They have economic resources. They have political influence, and so on. Um, uh, and yes, I think that Saudi Arabia. We, we've seen as the United States pulled back under the Obama administration. We've seen that in this triangle between Ankara, Jerusalem, and Riyadh, that all of the corners in the triangle move closer to each other. I'm not saying they're in, working greatly with each other, but they move closer to each other as the United States uh, pulled back. So I think that there, there is a way to come to agreement, to, to broker agreement between the, 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 the Saudis and the, uh, and the Turks, although they don't completely see eye to eye about Syria. Eric, do you want to address the Gulf? Or? No, but I will address this question. I mean, I think our opportunities to involve ourselves in a formal peace process have shrunk just in the last five years. Uh, the opportunity for us to be a credible broker, I think, was in 2013. Uh, after 2016, when Erdogan began to shift um, to the MHP and to the ultranationalists in Turkey, I think it became it would become political suicide for him to involve himself again in a peace process with the Kurds. Uh, and let's also remind ourselves that the civilian uh, uh, political leaders of the HDP are in prison right now and remain in prison. Um, these are precisely the people that you need in order to make peace inside Turkey. It's not going to happen. The gentleman in the aisle. Hi, my name is Alan Mendelson. I'm retired from the State Department. Uh, it surprises me that no one on this panel has mentioned the fact that there was a 1919-1920 treaty that the Allied powers negotiated and signed that created a state of Kurdistan at the expense of the Turks, who, of course, were parties to the German alliance in the First World War. A uh, second part of this question is, why doesn't the United States take the position that that treaty ought now be enforced? The PKK and the YPG are not terrorist organizations so much as they are organizations, thank you, so much as they are organizations that want an independent state. That's what they are. They're not ISIS. Don't call them terrorist organizations. Turkey doesn't like them because they want an independent state. Now, why shouldn't the United States come out and say, even if it costs us something in our Turkish relationship, why shouldn't the United States come out now and say, let's have an independent Kurdistan. Let's try to figure out where in the Middle East, where in Turkey, where in Iraq, where in Syria that state ought to be, and let's support it, and let's see who joins us in that kind of a position. Thanks. He wants to handle the character of the PKK. So uh, there are two reasons uh, for that. Uh, um, one is what I opened with. That a policy of building an independent Kurdistan in um, in Syria is one that's going to take um, a monumental military effort on the part of the United States. And there has been a decision on the part of left and right not to engage in that kind of – you're talking about remaking the whole map of the, um, uh, of the region. 
So we either we either work to build a, a we, we either work to build an order with the powers that that exist, or we pull back. We're not going to create any uh, any new powers. Uh, I, I, I can't I can only repeat myself over and over again. This is you're talking about an incredibly resource intensive operation, which the American people have no appetite. Uh, excuse me, sir. Excuse me, sir. Excuse me, excuse me, sir. Sir, the, here's how the, here's how this works. You ask questions and I answer. Uh, that's how it works. The uh, uh, the second uh, the, the second reason is uh, for the reasons I uh, again that I said it's not going to work uh, because it's going to alienate the Turks, push the Turks into the arms of the Russians and the uh, and the Iranians who will use it to break up NATO and to put us in a much uh, uh, in a greatly disadvantaged. Uh, strategic situation. I, 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 we haven't seen a Turkey. We've, we've seen a Turkey that's being difficult. We haven't seen a Turkey that's actively opposed to us and working uh, with all of the tools that it that it has against our against our interests in the Middle East and and in Europe. And that's a very ugly picture which we haven't imagined yet. And I, I think we should start thinking about it. Uh, you know, there's a saying that I heard once in Kurdistan that World War II and the Cold War are over, but World War I is still being fought. Um, and that's true. Uh, but just as I said earlier, that I think, you know, that the convulsion that you're seeing in a region is part and parcel a function of the fact that the regimes that were formed out of World War I were based upon highly exclusive ideas of ethnic nationalism and didn't have indigenous traditions of decentralization or federalism. And two, one and a half of them have fallen apart already. Two others of them are primed, I think, for greater internal fighting, for conflict, among other things. As I said earlier, without getting over that 20th century tradition of ethno-nationalism, and there are models in countries like Turkey, there are even models in Iran that can get beyond that that and did that 20th century tradition of governance and politics. But without getting beyond that, then the convulsion that you're seeing in the greater Levant is going to spread. Um, or it's just going to become a battle of force. Um, that said, so I, in addition to this ethno-nationalism priming the region for greater conflict, I don't think ethno-nationalism on the part of the Kurds is a wise strategy either. Uh, I do think that the United States has an active interest in helping to support and making political investments in local Kurdish self-rule. Uh, uh, we had that opportunity in northeastern Iraq, and I don't think our diplomacy or our involvements on the ground lived up to that. I've argued before that we should involve ourselves with YPG, but we should not treat them as mercenaries and auxiliaries in American counterterrorism operations simply. We need to have make an effort to, number one, reduce any kind of large-scale revisionist tendencies amongst the politics. And the best way to do that is to focus on nation-building or the development of actual institutions of Kurdish self-rule in Rojava. But we don't have any plan to do that right now. We're still thinking purely in terms of a counterterrorism prism and not in terms of how to actually create the politics in the region that will win the peace. No. Yes, sir, here in the front. 
Aykan Erdemir Senior Fellow Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Uh, in February 2015, when uh, Turkey was carrying out the Süleyman Shah operation, which was basically moving a, a, an, an ancient shrine from within Syria near Turkish border, it coordinated the operation with PYD officials that Ankara hosted in Turkey, as well as coordinating with the YPG forces uh, during the operation. Of course, that was a different time. Uh, do you, Eric, do you see uh, in the future any opportunity for Erdogan to go back to such a policy? That is, uh, a policy which, ha which is pragmatic towards the PYD and is so flexible as to uh, bring Turkish troops to work with YPG forces. Uh, I know there is now a, a very strong coalition with the far right in Turkey, but do you see any possibility through which Erdogan could sell out the current far right uh, allies, as he has done so with Gulenists, liberals, uh, and Kurds before, and go back to another set of tactical alliances, this time with the Kurds again? You know that I think that and know that Erdogan is a very shrewd politician and he's an opportunist. And I think if conditions were to present themselves, he would potentially make that effort. Um, but I think he's committed too much to the ultranationalists now um, to be able to rekindle that kind of cooperative politics with uh, Kurdish leaders, both in Turkey and out of Turkey. I do think that there are elements within the AKP, we have to understand the AK Party is deeply divided at the highest levels, and that there's a lot of people in the AK Party that have deep reservations with Erdogan's alliance with hardliners within the MHP. And as we know, that there are splits within the MHP as well on this issue. Um, uh, so I do think that there's a possibility for a change of how Turkey deals with the Kurdish question, both on its internal uh, border as well as its external borders. But I don't think Erdogan can deliver on that. I think he's committed too much um, to, to ultranationalism to sustain his imperial presence, presidency. Let's go to the uh, front right, please. Thank you very much. Uh, name's Kyle. I'd just like to thank our panelists for this wonderful uh, discussion and offering valuable insights. I'm just a non-interested par uh, interest party. Just who is, who is most wonderful? <laughs> well, that's kind of hard to say. <laughs> um, mm, my question regards, I guess, Turkey is currently suffering or going through an economic downturn like with massive inflation, um, harder uh, growing GDP rates, and so on and so forth with rising taxes and everything. Um, I'm trying to imagine on our side, if this were to happen, like if we had 30,000 Russian troops on our border by California or massive influx of refugees coming into California, how would we react to that situation? Or California as it is going on now with New California, um, what would be the outcome of that? That's just one of the um, questions I had in mind. Observation on the pressure yeah. is under either of you want to Thank you very much. expand on that. Eric? Well, I mean, contrary to some of what I said, I, the U.S. does need to be deeply sympathetic of the situation that Turkey's in. But as I also argued, Turkey has backed itself into that situation. Um, uh, the mismanagement of the economy, the current economic struggles that Turkey is going through are largely a function of Turkish policy. Um, unfortunately, you know, Peter had asked me earlier about 
things that I think we need to do um, to be able to uh, perhaps revivify or at least begin the work of restoring the Turkish Republic over the long range. We need a, a, a vigorous huddle with our closest European allies, number one, um, because uh, what's at stake right now is that Erdogan does actually have um, a potential uh, new strategic benefactor, which he does not have. And Russia can't be that, and Iran can't be that. They simply don't have the money. Um, but China has increasing involvements in the Middle East and in the Eastern Mediterranean. As, as we know, it has enormous sums of money um, as part of its BRI initiative. I would suspect that China is telling Turkey, um, uh, we're uh, interested in developing your country and making real investments, which would, in fact, help Erdogan deal with the economic crisis at home and probably give Erdogan a real new leash on a political career going forward if he was able to attract large amounts of Chinese capital. But I would suspect that the Chinese are telling them, well, you're not really all that interesting to us unless you stabilize yourself at home, number one, and number two, improve your relations with the markets in Europe. Um, now, I think that there's quite a bit of folks in Europe that might look at this as one way of sort of dealing with their own Turkey problem, their Turkey question, and they might seek to take that deal. But if that is consummated, it would uh, create, I think, a new deep structure of power across Eurasia, um, uh, which would have enormous ramifications for the future of the transatlantic alliance, number one. Number two, it won't solve Turkey's uh, stability issues and its internal uh, problems. It will only abet them worse. This gentleman on the far right. Uh, my name is Paul Davis, and it's going to be a difficult uh, question because I see pictures of the YPG flags fluttering over Ocalan's picture. Um, we have constantly said, and Mike, you've said this over and over again, you won't make a difference between PYD and the PKK. The United States has made that differentiation. PKK is a terrorist organization under the United States. YPG and PYD are not. Uh, we know that they are philosophically aligned. We know that there are alignments with them, uh, that the two units do align together to a point. We also know uh, the uh, PYD has no interest in a, in a uh, trans-Kurdistan movement. Their movement is primarily within Syria, just as the, the uh, KRG between the PUK and the KDP are primarily in Iraq. If we can work on that assumption, if we can say that to Turkey, yes, we understand the problem of the PYD. Uh, they are a, we call it a Stalinist, I think they're more Maoist, but that's just a philosophical difference. Um, that we can work with them. We're with them right now. They're not going to align with the PKK in force. And we know this because you had said Turkey's not going to accept a PKK enclave in Syria that is aligned to, break, to, to, to taking Turkish Kurds away from Turkey. Yet never have the YPG operated inside of Turkey or threatened Turkey. Um, and yet today we see that the Turks have invaded Syria on an enclave of the YPG because they're terrorists. Can we move toward a point where we're trying to work with Turkey and saying, these Kurds are Syrian Kurds, they want a Syrian encla a Kurdish enclave, be it a Federalist enclave, an independent enclave, or what have you, they're not going to invade Turkey. Can you please get the heck out? Uh, 
Well, I don't agree with the premise of the question, because I do think that they are cousins, if not sister organizations. So I would have a different starting point with you. I think that that discussion with the Turks would not be a fruitful one. Where I would hope you could get more traction is, as I said before, talking about the geographic expanse of the YPG-PYD statelet. Maybe, I'm making this up, but maybe a Turkish buffer all along the Turkish-Syrian border in Afrin. Building a buffer, the Turks would come in and build a buffer inside Syria, between what I'm calling a PKK statelet and Turkey, so that they don't have a direct border with each other. That might be a kind of compromise situation. Ideally, it would be great if we could get the PYD-YPG to agree to power sharing within the areas that they control, where Kurds who don't agree with them have some kind of representation. But I think that's probably fanciful if we're not going to have the military on the ground that can make that happen. They're not going to do it. They take over the areas and establish sole control when they take over, and that's a serious problem. All right, the last question of the day goes to the gentleman here in the front. If you just wait for the microphone to make its way to you and introduce yourself, please. Thank you for the presentation. Ethan Coleman from the Kurdish Studies Network, coordinator there. I have two remarks, the first being to Mr. Duren. With all due respect, I think either you have not read PKK literature or not have followed it since 1995, which is when, during the Fifth Congress, the PKK unanimously decided not to secede from Turkey and has ended the armed strike for an independent Kurdistan. So I think it's not adapted to the times when we're speaking of today's PKK as a separatist organization. That is very important because I think it feeds the fear of the states, which you have earlier mentioned as is the reason why it is legitimate to attack. The SIR has also earlier mentioned that no threat whatsoever since the creation of the PYD and its armed forces, YPJ and YPJ, have ever threatened an attack on or within the territory of Turkey. That is something that we need to take into consideration. Referring to a PKK state, what is a PKK state as opposed to what's going on in South Kurdistan? Would you refer to that as a Barzani state? You have just mentioned in your assessment yourself that the issue is not with the Kurds but with the PKK. That is very, very wrong. We have seen that in post-September N referendum. Yes, the issue is with the Kurds. It's not of quintessence what political color that is, but the raison d'etat of the Turkish state is to squash any Kurdish self-rule. 
So I think we are making a mistake by saying he sided with the Barzanis. He sided with them not for being Kurdish, but it followed, it was on the same political co uh, color, being a, a conservative, religious, uh, Islamic party. Um, that is my, f that would be my remark to you. Maybe a question. joining the ranks of the Turkish Armed Forces. This is something we in the West will one day have to justify when such terror organizations make attacks in Paris, in London, in New York. Thank you. If you want to respond, go ahead. Yeah, sure. I, I, I'll, um, there's no government in, in Ankara that is not going to look at a um, at a Kurdish statelet on its border in Syria as anything other than the beginning of a process of of, uh, uh, of detaching the Kurds of uh, of um, uh, of Turkey from from Turkey, regardless of what they regardless of what the stated goals of the uh, of the movement in Syria are at, at this at this time. Um, and personally, I think that that's a completely logical way of looking at the um, uh, at the problem, because the because the, the the immediate political and military goals of the organization in Syria are not focused on Turkey. Of course, they're not for all kinds of practical reasons. But if they but if they if they are able to establish themselves as an independent statement, um, the appetite will increase with the eating. That is the uh, uh, that 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 is how I would see it, and I think that's how anyone in 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 in, in Ankara would see it. Uh, so the goal. So I'm not saying now because we have um, because we have um, we are where we are, and the United States has made decisions, and I don't think it should pick up and leave. I don't think it should just throw the um, uh, throw the Kurds of Syria to the wind. That would that would be a mistake. Uh, but I think that we have to we have to recognize that the Turkish that the Turkish interests are enduring, serious, and Turkish. They're not just simply Erdogan's uh, Erdogan's interests, and it's not in the benefit of the United States or the Kurds of Syria that we do otherwise. If we get this wrong, if we misread the Turks on this, think that we can somehow do some kind of clever maneuver around them. It will be a lot worse. I, uh, I, I completely dis disagree with what Eric said. That, that is the route to war. The route to war is the one that we are following right now. We are sowing the seeds of a t our policy, particularly under the Obama administration, has sown the seeds of a Turkish-Kurdish war. And that's what I would like to prevent. See, I would like to prevent that as well. Um, and that's, of course, what brought us together today. But on your al-Qaeda and Islamic State question, there's no doubt amongst Turkish analysts and others in the region that both have established a deep ideological and probably even operational presence in Turkey, uh, in Turkey itself. And this says, and I argued after the coup, um, that the purges of the military, of the gendarmerie, and of all sorts of other intelligence and security agencies was dramatically reducing Turkey's capability to deal with that challenge. 
that's just going to grow more severe going forward. And that needs to factor into all of our calculations um, about what's going on. I mean, Turkey, literally, even if it wanted to, doesn't have the capability, I think, to secure itself at home and to contribute in a meaningful way to the reconstitution of order in the region. I mean, it has become so penetrated by a lot of the chaos that we've seen in Syria and elsewhere um, that it's going to take a long time to revivify and bring back on track. Well, that ended up being a rather robust debate. Thank you all for being here, and please join me in thanking our two sparring partners.